KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Changing demographics are a big part of the resistance to voting rights, and as we watch the roadblocks in Washington, hear how Latinos are finally gaining representation in one North County town. And what a week for Willie O'Ree. The former San Diego goal is being recognized at the highest levels for breaking hockey's color barrier. We'll talk with the filmmaker who tells his remarkable story. I'm Matt Hoffman, and this is KPBS Roundtable. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Today, our freedom to vote is under assault. In Georgia and across our nation, anti-voter laws are being passed that could make it more difficult for as many as 55 million Americans to vote. 55 million Americans. That is one out of six people in our country. And the proponents of these laws are not only putting in place obstacles to the ballot box, they are also working to interfere with our elections, to get the outcomes they want and to discredit those they do not. That is not how democracies work. Any senator who cannot support the protection of voting rights in the United States of America cannot say that they support the Constitution. Stop the hypocrisy. Cut the bull-ish. If you care and support our rights, do the hard work. You can't please everybody, but you can protect all of us. And to keep it all the way real, the filibuster is not working for democracy. Why won't you? That was Vice President Kamala Harris with an assist from Motown legend Stevie Wonder. They're hoping that a couple of Democrats or really any Senate Republicans will listen to them. While the focus has been on Washington this week, the old cliche, all politics is local, rings true. Just look to the northern edge of San Diego County. That's where political power is finally shifting in Fallbrook. It was once known as a hotbed for racist violence, and Latinos who make up half of the population are starting to make gains. Will Huntsbury wrote about it for Voice of San Diego. Diego, and he's here on Roundtable. Welcome back, Will. Thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Okay, so first off, what sort of led you to this story, and why do you think it's an important one for people to hear? Yeah, well, I mean, like you said, Fallbrook is an unincorporated town in North County, and it's 50% Latino. And so I was really shocked to learn that up until 2020, it didn't have any Latinos on any of its boards. There are four or five boards up there. There had been a a couple on a couple of boards in the past, but some boards had never had a Latino on them in in the many decades or or hundred years they'd been in existence. And so, you know, um, I talked to Ricardo Favela and, uh, you know, he was the first Latino ever elected to the Fallbrook 
uh, Union Elementary School District. Sorry, it's a lot of words to remember, but that school district is 65% Latino. And so, you know, I was really fascinated by this town, which has such a massive Latino presence, but had very, very few Latino representatives until recently. And I wanted to find out more about it. And speaking of Mr. Ricardo Favela, we know that he grew up in Fallbrook during a time of deadly racist violence at the hands of white supremacists. How did that history spur him toward a life of activism? Yeah, the history of the white power movement in Fallbrook is really astonishing. And, you know, I've been in San Diego for a few years. Maybe some people are very, very familiar with this history, but I think it's a history that often goes untold. You know, through the 80s and the 90s, there was literally a violent white power movement that instead of targeting black people like it did in the South, targeted immigrants, many of whom were Mexican. And, you know, at times they were killed and beaten by different gangs of of white people. Sometimes that was the KKK and sometimes it was white youth. You mentioned uh, Ricardo and his father was an immigrant worker in the avocado groves of Fallbrook, like so many other people. And, you know, his father was surrounded by a, a group of young white people. And, you know, fortunately, his father was holding a water key, which is like this long metal object. He let those people know he would defend himself and they backed off. But Ricardo told me that, you know, stories like that from the 80s and 90s are super common. And so when Ricardo was in high school, he joined a group called United Pride. And that's a group that started in Fallbrook in the early 80s. And it was a group of Latinos who organized to protect themselves against violence from the KKK. And and many listeners probably will have heard of Tom Metzger, who lived in Fallbrook. He was the head of the KKK for California. He ran for Congress. He won the Democratic primary. So there was this clash of groups there. You know, you had United Pride trying to protect themselves and you had the KKK and later the white Aryan resistance and Tom Metzger trying to push those people out. And so, you know, this having to fight for survival on the part of Latinos led them to organize really strongly over the decades and and create a strong political presence. Initially, they didn't even want political representation. They wanted to be safe. But, you know, over the years, the movement has changed. And so as you write, you know, Favela was inspired to run for office and he was recently elected to the Fallbrook Union Elementary School District Board, as you had mentioned. Why did he choose to run for that position and what has his win meant for the community? There's a community in Fallbrook of Latinos and many, many Latinos who are immigrants or first generation immigrants. And so a lot of times those students have very unique needs in the school system, you know. Many of them are what are called English language learners in education jargon, meaning English isn't their first language. And so, you know, those learners need a certain kind of robust dual instruction where they're not just learning reading and math and history. They're also, you know, their English is getting up to par to also be able to to learn all those subjects. So that's one reason it was important to him. But another big reason, he said, is also making sure that Latino history is part of is, is much more part of the curriculum. You know, he talked a lot about how Camp Pendleton, which is right next to Fallbrook, was previously owned by a Mexican who was really big in politics in Mexico when California was part of Mexico and then in the U.S. when it became part of the U.S. And he talked about how, you know, so few people know that story. And so 
He wants Latinos to see themselves also really reflected in the curriculum. Favela was one of a handful of Latinos among the first to hold his seat on the governing board in Fallbrook, but it might not have happened if it weren't for some significant election changes. Will, can you walk through what happened to allow Latinos to have more of an influence at the polls? Sure. So the California Voting Rights Act, uh, forgive the history lesson, was passed in um, 2001. And that act sought to abolish at-large elections in municipalities and cities if those at-large elections meant certain groups couldn't get their candidates elected. And that's exactly what was happening in Fallbrook. If you hold an at-large election, that means you vote across the entire jurisdiction and there's no small sub-districts within it. And so because white people had the majority, even as it was a thinning majority all those years, they were able to win all the seats on the board. And so in 2019, uh, people were threatening to sue Fallbrook Union Elementary District. And finally, under that threat of lawsuit, they moved to comply with the California Voting Rights Act. So that, that was obviously like a huge change that made this possible. And then I think the question now is, with 50% Latinos, you know, is one seat on each governing board, is, is that enough? I'm talking with Will Huntsbury. He's a reporter for Voice of San Diego. And Will, you sort of get into Fallbrook's history a bit in this piece, especially during the 1980s when migrants were under pressure from all over San Diego County. How would you describe the experience for Latinos during that time? I mean, I know you touched on favela's history, but was that like an isolated experience? No, I think people in the 80s and the 90s were terrified is is what they told me you know and i spoke to another activist who graduated from high school in fallbrook in 1985 hector muro and it was not uncommon for for people to uh, for latinos and immigrants to fear for their lives and for their safety you know they talked about hearing stories of immigrants literally being thrown off cliffs and, and that's not urban legend, like I wrote in the piece. Back in the 80s, the New York Times documented that Border Patrol agents had said they had thrown immigrants off of cliffs in San Diego County in order to make it look like an accident. And, you know, there was a, there's a report from the California legislature in 1990 that talks about a gang of 17-year-olds shooting at immigrants in fields. And, you know, there's, there's an other articles that talk about a group of Marines that went on, quote, beaner raids and would go, you know, into fields looking for, for Mexican immigrants usually. And, you know, those people in some cases were charged with attempted murder. Uh, you know, the violence that occurred in the 80s and 90s is hard to overstate it. This week, there's a national discussion centered on the refusal of Republicans and a couple of Democrats to support voting reforms. Will, do you see parallels here between the situation in Fallbrook and elsewhere in the country? Yeah, absolutely, Matt. I mean, you know, if you think about some of the voting rights stuff that's going on nationally, you know, I think a lot of those voting rights laws that are in some cases potentially limiting the vote of certain groups are happening in the South. But I think there are parallels in California. You have an organized group of Latino people in North County and Fallbrook in this case who have needed political representation for years and have had to fight tooth and nail to get it. They finally did get it in 2019, which is, you know, really shocking that they've 
been such a substantial part of this community. You know, I mean, Fallbrook has tried to style itself as the avocado capital of the world, right? And on on the one hand, you've got political structures that aren't meeting the needs of immigrants, even while like the town is being built on immigrants. And so I think that fight for political power that other people are are pushing for across the country is something that uh, people have been pushing for in Fallbrook too, and are going to continue to push for, because right now they have like one seat on each of the boards, essentially, while they're representing 50% of the population or 40% in certain of the government jurisdictions. But that's a big, that's a big number. And I think each of these people on the boards, they don't want to feel like the pressure of being the one Latino member of the board speaking for a population that's 50% Latino. So I think their fight is still ongoing. Fallbrook Union Elementary has a higher percentage of Latino students than the whole entire town itself. Uh, So with that in mind, what's next for a favela who you profiled? Is there anything specific on his agenda or any goals that he has? I think favela would absolutely like to see more political representation. You know, I think when you think about school district that's been around for many decades, I think 100 years, in fact, and it's 65 percent Latino students and it just got its first Latino board member ever, I think there's still a ways to go. You know, that's that's what really brought me to the story. You have a big community of Guatemalan um, immigrants there. And many times they might be indigenous communities who come to California and don't speak English or speak Spanish really well. And so the education of those children requires different means than we're used to with maybe Mexican immigrants. And so I think that's that's one of the things that Favela and other political representatives there are saying is we need more representation so we can stop treating Latino people like they're a monolith in Fallbrook. You know, there there's a diversity within the Latino community, which is healthy and robust, and that should be represented on the boards. Well, we'll definitely be following up with you to see if there's any more change that's coming up. I've been speaking with Will Huntsbury. He's a reporter at Voice of San Diego. And Will, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Matt. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. That was a story about one kind of trailblazer, and now here's another. Jackie Robinson is a household name, but what about Willie O'Ree? He broke the NHL's color barrier back in 1958, but it took 60 years for him to become a Hall of Famer. And this week, the accolades are piling on. The Boston Bruins retired his number 22, and the U.S. House of Representatives voted unanimously to award him the Congressional Gold Medal. It's a story that everyone should know, and one with deep ties to San Diego. Our next guest tells it in the award-winning documentary, Willie. Lawrence Matthew is the producer and director, and she's here on KPBS Roundtable. Hey, Lawrence. Hi, guys. So on the surface, this film is about a hockey player, but it's really about history and humanity. Is that what you tried to capture with this film and Willie's overall story? Yeah, I think 
you know, when we first decided to make the film, Brian McBride and I, who's my co-producer, we really wanted to tell a story about the importance of diversity in sports in general. And Brian had known Willie for years. He actually was the one who had hired him, rehired him at, at the NHL um, as the first Black executive. He brought him back to start the um, diversity program. Bryant was kind of like my, how can I say this, like the person who uh, introduced me to Willie. And when Brian told me he knew Willie, I was like, oh my gosh, like we need to make this film yesterday. We need to capture this moment and use his story to inspire young people and also tell the bigger story of how important diversity in sports and in general, in, in every aspect of our lives is important to celebrate. All right, let's hear the trailer for this film and then we'll come back and dive right into it. In terms of this business of being a Jackie Robinson of hockey, have you had any troubles? Willie O'Ree of the Boston Bruins is the first Negro to play in the National Hockey League. Sixty years ago, Willie O'Ree broke the color barrier in professional hockey. He changed the game forever. Why don't we have Willie O'Ree in the Hockey Hall of Fame? I had my opportunity because of people like Willie O'Ree. He was blind in one eye. I played with a lot of guys who weren't very good who had two eyes. <laughs> you know, you'd be sitting in the friendly box and you'd hear the racial slur. Someone calls me an N-word on the ice. I don't stand for that. Willie is a hero. He's a hockey hero. That's the trailer for the 2019 documentary, Willie, on the life and career of hockey legend and San Diegan, Willie O'Ree. We're talking with the director and producer. The documentary starts with Willie reconnecting with old friends in his hometown of Fredericton, New Brunswick, up in Canada. And just about all of them are white, but it was a much different culture there in the 40s and 50s compared to what was happening in the U.S. at the time. Do you think that that upbringing prepared him for what he was going to face here? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think there's uh, this idea that Canada was sort of this, you know, free of racism country, but that's not entirely true. Um, Canada does have kind of a shameful history as far as uh, Indigenous people are concerned, and there was definitely racism in Canada. The difference, though, was that there wasn't sort of a Jim Crow system in place, which means that Willie was allowed to play sports with his friends. You know, there was no, like, segregation as we had known it in the United States. And so I think that definitely the fact that Willie had sort of integrated the community normally, if I can use that word, without the restraint of race, meant that he, you know, had never really experienced what he was about to experience going in the United States. And he actually tells that story really well in the film when he went down to Georgia to play baseball, because Willie also was a baseball player. And uh, he had gotten a shot at playing in the minor leagues. And he described that experience as being horrific, uh, arriving in, in Georgia, and, you know, like, and for the first time, uh, having to use a Black-only bathroom. And the uh, the team being segregated by color also was something he had never experienced before. So I, I do think that coming from Canada definitely did not prepare him for what it, he was about to experience. At the same time, I do want to say that he came from a community of people who loved him and supported him, people who were allies. And I think that gave him strength and courage to persevere. And it was part of the reason why he, he pushed through. The film includes the stories of younger hockey players of color, including female players. While maybe not as frequent, they still get slurs and verbal abuse thrown at them. How does Willie try to help them overcome the sort of same issues that he dealt with so long ago? 
Yeah, it's interesting. For me, it was very important to include women in the film. Uh, I wanted to ensure that this was sort of a transgenerational film where we would not only know about Willie's story, but understand that these issues are very real today and affect younger people. And that women are part of this equation. Women do play hockey, even though we don't see them that often. And there's a huge hockey culture in the U.S. and in Canada. And more and more women of color are playing. And so as far as Willie's concerned, his relationship to young people was very interesting. There was a time where the NHL would sort of fill him in when they would get reports of racism within different youth leagues. And he would literally call parents and young people on the phone to sort of have conversations with young people, tell them to not give up, let them know that, you know, if they let the hatred get in the way, then that's going to affect them. And so I think Sydney Kinder says it well in the film. She, in the end, you know, was inspired by Willie and decided to do this for herself. And it took her to college. So she didn't, she didn't let all the, the negativity get in the way. And she, she, she pushed through and, and she achieved her goals. And so I think Willie's message still resonates with young people, especially women, because you have to, to overcome that additional barrier of being a woman in a sport where, you know, you don't get that much attention. And so it's sort of a double battle. And if you're a woman of color, it adds a layer of difficulty. You and your crew were filming at Willie's home in San Diego when he got the call back in 2018 that he was going into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Now, obviously, that's a very special moment for him. But take us into the mind of a filmmaker here. What was it like to be present during a moment like that? So that's an interesting moment. And thank you for asking about this. Brian McBride and I were at Willie's home when we were, he was waiting for the call. And we actually weren't sure if he was going to get the call. And that's interesting as a filmmaker because you think, oh, man, I hope he gets the call because that's sort of the climax of the film, right? Like he gets the call and, you know, it's happy ever after. But what if he doesn't get the call? And we sort of waited and waited and waited. And and the call, you know, in the film, there's this sort of buildup where we're sort of waiting and waiting and the calls are coming. And that buildup is is real. You know, sometimes in edit rooms, you have to build sort of a bit of drama around the scene. But we we literally waited and at some point i think brian and i were texting each other in the living room <laughs> saying do you think he's going to get the call what if he doesn't get the call you know and so i thought to myself if he doesn't get the call it's still a story because it's a missed opportunity to celebrate him while he's still here and it'll still be an important moment and i was as i was thinking this the phone rang And so it was just a gorgeous moment. And, you know, when Willie got the call, he hung up and he came to hug me and I was filming with the camera. (laughs) So I was like, obviously didn't make the the cut, but um, it was just uh, really unique to be with him and his family and to get to experience that with him. And I'll never forget it. Yeah, sounds like a very cool moment. And part of the reason that we have interest in this story is Willie's connection to San Diego. We know that he played for the Goals hockey team here for a number of years. Did he tell you why he chose to stay in San Diego when his playing days were done? Yeah, I don't know if you've ever been to Nova Scotia, but the winters are very long (laughs) and it's very cold. And so, you know, I think Willie had had a phenomenal career with the Gulls. Um, He was one of their best players. I think he he left an, an impression in San Diego and sort of like a legacy. And, you know, he his family had settled in and I think his daughter was born in San Diego, his youngest daughter. And once he was done with this career, there was no reason to leave. I mean, that was his home. And, you know, I've been to San Diego and I always think I'd like to move there. So I I understand. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think that's why he chose to stay. 
You mentioned Willie not getting into the Hockey Hall of Fame would have been a missed opportunity. Why do you think it's taken this long for Willie to get into things like the Hall of Fame and get some of these accolades like the ones we've been seeing coming out this week? So it's interesting you're asking this question because I had this conversation with uh, Georges Larac, who uh, is a former NHL player and also uh, of Haitian descent. He's black. And Georges was telling me that, you know, for a very long time, accolades in hockey were based on your stats. And so it was kind of like if you had had 20 seasons uh, in the NHL and a ton of points, this is when you would be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. There was no recognition for the meaning of your presence in the league, if I can put it that way. And it's only a few years back that they started um, having a category for builders. So people who have had an an impact on the game that is lasting. I think it was just a moment in time. You know, Trump had come into an office in 2016, 2016. And then there was a lot of sort of tension in the United States at that time. And I think it had awakened some minds to the, the fact that diversity matters and it's important to celebrate it. Again, I think what we've seen this weekend um, with the retirement of his jersey, you know, is really kind of a celebration of courage. It's showing that you can leave a lasting impression by representing at a time where no one else was representing or you weren't allowed to represent in the NHL. And him just being there, you know, he didn't have like a 20-year a, a career in the NHL. His presence, the fact that he was the first meant that he opened the door and that took enormous amount of courage. Can you remind our listeners of how they can watch the film? Yes, uh, the film can be watched on uh, NBC Peacock, which is a streaming service, and you can also catch it on ESPN Plus online and on their uh, ESPN Plus streaming platform. Something to definitely check out, especially with all his recent accolades. I've been talking with Lawrence Matthew. She directed and produced the documentary, Willie. It's about Hockey Hall of Famer and San Diegan Willie O'Ree. Thanks so much for your time, Lawrence. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Willie O'Ree could not travel to Boston this week due to concerns about the pandemic. Now in his 80s, he's staying active here in San Diego. Back in 2015, I got a chance to meet him at the sports arena. Here's part of that story. Back within two. A lot of time here, Jeff. Four to two's our score. 16.56 left in the third. Hockey has a rich history here in San Diego, dating back to the late 1940s when the Skyhawks played at Glacier Gardens downtown. But it wasn't until the Gulls arrived in 1966 that hockey was truly established in San Diego. Willie O'Ree was the first black man ever to play in the NHL, and he would spend seven seasons with the Goals starting in 1967. He remembers what it was like on a typical weekend. I knew, um, I knew the, the 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 fan appreciation, how the how the fans supported the uh, supported the team, because when I come down in the weekends, they'd have over 14,000 here in the sports arena. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's edition of KPBS Roundtable. And thank you to my guests, Will Huntsbury from Voice of San Diego and Lawrence Matthew, who produced and directed the documentary Willie. If you missed any part of our show, you can listen anytime on the KPBS Roundtable podcast. I'm Matt Hoffman. Join us next week on Roundtable. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.